0: Hello everyone and welcome. You are listening to the Clarkson Ignite podcast again, coming to you from the digital making suite in the Innovation Hub.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Annalise and our podcast releases every 10th, 20th and 30th.
0: I'm Nick. And I'm producer Ben. Our mission is to shape this podcast to the Ignite slogan, which is Think, Make, Ignite. We hope to connect individuals across Clarkson's diverse community and give you, our listeners, an interesting and unique content. Our hope is that you can walk away from our episodes learning something new and valuable, something that will truly inspire.
1: This week we interviewed Professor John Dan Johnson Ilola. He is a communications professor on campus who works frequently in the audio field. He talked with us about how he got his start in audio and the newest tech in the field. John Dan and Ben also highlighted the digital making suite and all the work that's been put into the space.
0: It was great to have John Dan on, and we hope you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. All right, this is Listener Mail. This week, coming from Pat Maciel, he asked us what your favorite sound is, going off the topic of sound. In this podcast, we did sound.
2: Um, Ben, do you have any ideas? I I think I got to go with the Windows XP startup sound. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just a good, wholesome, nostalgic sound, especially. Um, And it also means my computer is turning on, which is generally a good thing.
0: Yeah.
1: it's pretty solid. That's a pretty
0: solid answer. It feels good. I feel like I could set that as my like, phone alarm, and I wouldn't be displeased when it goes off. At least for the first week or two.
1: Yeah. See, I feel like it would just frustrate me. Like, I could hear it once or twice and be like, ah, oh, like, go back. <laughs> and then if I heard it every morning, I'd be like, no.
0: Well, the thing is, it's starting up, and you're starting up. So it almost feel right.
1: Oh see, it takes me like six alarms to get up in the morning, so listening to that six different times in the morning would really just drive me crazy. Well,
0: what you should do for the Never mind. Yeah. You're right.
1: What were you gonna say, Nick? No. I was <laughs> say.
0: All right. Well, my favorite sound, on a different topic, is uh it is the sound uh, when you're standing in the woods after a fresh snowfall, the silence is just comforting. I like it.
1: Like a little bit of wind in the background. Yeah.
2: That's nice. You can hear the trees.
1: Mm. The trees are
2: speaking. <laughs> yeah, I could see how that could very easily take a turn for the eerie, but mm-hmm. as long as you're in that, that just right mindset, mindset, yeah. Annalise?
1: Yeah. Um, probably rain on a tin roof, wow. you know, like in the morning you're waking up, you hear the rain. I think that's pleasant, but...
0: I wouldn't be able to get out of bed.
1: Yeah, no, I yeah. I don't either. Like whenever I've like stayed in like a camp or something like that and I've heard it, I just want to lay in bed all day. But it's not a bad thing. Rest is good. Yeah, rest is good. I don't get enough of it, but... Yeah. Sweet.
0: All right. Thank you so much. All right. Welcome to the Clarkson Ignite podcast, John Dan. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, We're just going to start right off, and we're going to ask you, uh, what got you into the field of audio and working with audio? Uh,
3: It's been a long time. Back in 1983, I did a radio show for my college radio station, a midnight to 3 a.m. jazz show. And I've been working uh, sort of on and off with audio since then. Uh, more recently, about 10 years ago, some students from WTSC asked me if I would help them set up a sound uh, recording class so they could train students to use the recording studio. And we did uh, focus primarily on recording live music for a couple of years, and in the last few years, we've drifted into looking more at developing sound design for media, which includes things like podcasting. Uh, developing audio for video, uh, video games, and um, some more experimental music kind of things.
0: Mm-hmm. You've kind of lived through the genesis of like modern audio. What's yeah. it been like seeing the production of that, the, like the escalation?
3: The equipment has gotten a lot cheaper.
0: Oh, really? And more powerful. Oh, yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, when we started, we were working with uh, audio cassettes, um, and that was interesting to work with. Uh, It was clumsy. It was very space consuming. It was time consuming to work with. Uh, And it's back then, as you probably have seen before, actually involved using a razor to cut the tape and then splice it back together with uh, scotch tape. Mm -hmm. Um, Now you just click a button, which is great because it's fast, but it also um, sometimes overwhelms people with uh, the number of possibilities. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's nice nice to go back and do things in a more limited way. So some of the students this semester are working with uh, modular synth Technologies which are date uh, prior to actual keyboard sense, and they're pretty limited in what they can do. Is that the one with the pen? No, not mean the pen. It's got the cables you connect each of the oh, modules wow. to each other, and their are oscillators and filters and things like that. So that's the project the students are currently working on in sound design. So. Wow.
0: Do you think through the, like, through the escalation of the technology, it's like lost a little bit of the art of it? Do you think there was a golden era in there that you love the most?
3: No, I think that uh you know thirty or forty years ago the people that were really committed to doing the art were doing it because of mm-hmm. the amount of work involved. I think there are a lot more people doing it today, but yeah. the artists are still there so it's it's more of a, a democratic technology, but there's no reason you can't be artistic with really high tech gear versus real low tech gear you know it's, it's it's just a different kind of thing mm-hmm.
0: wow. uh you're talking about how at Clark's University mm-hmm. you got involved with uh w t s c What's
3: it like uh, working with the students on Audion? Uh, They're really great to work. I mean, the students that work at WTSC are, um, as some of you know, uh, really committed. They're there because they want to be. The university has been really supportive in terms of the technology. Uh, When I started working at WTSC, we were still down in the pit. um, And it was great because nobody paid attention to what you guys were doing down there. You had a great recording studio. And... um, through the work of the the students, when the student center was being designed, they got that awesome space down there. So, oh. sort of this transition to the new space. I've been less involved with that recently, but I can still hear among the students that are in my classes, they're still committed to it.
0: Yeah, and they and keep getting better and better spaces. And now yeah. you come into this space, the three rooms that they have for the digital making suite. What kind of audio technology and acoustics goes into this room?
3: Uh, it's more complicated than people think if they don't haven't worked in this area before. So, one of the first things we found out. Um, when we started working in these spaces, that is that the uh, echo you get yeah. from the walls is pretty bad. So in here, we've tr- uh, treated these with I think there are the yep. uh sound panels. Um, there's ten of them, eight or ten of them, and they help with reflections off the walls. Otherwise, you get a really echoey feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, they're fairly expensive, but without it, you probably couldn't record audio in here, uh, wow. decent audio. Um, so it's been a, a, a nice. Uh, sort of set up for the room. It does have acoustic tiles, the tiles on the ceiling, and the, the floor is carpeted, which helps a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to the treatment in the room, you've got some uh, decent microphones, I think we'll probably talk about later, um, as well as video equipment uh, and audio and video uh, editing suites mm-hmm. that students can have access to whatever projects they want to work on.
0: Wow.
1: How do you decide, like, where to put the soundboards on the walls, like how to locate them? We asked the people
3: to make them. <laughs> there you go. Specifically? Yeah, we did. We, we sent them uh, dimensions of the rooms. We mm-hmm. talked about what the, the uh, composition of the walls and the floor and the ceiling were. And they made recommendations. The only thing we didn't purchase was... Um, the bass traps in the corner. And at this point, we're not doing a lot of bass-heavy mixing or music. If yeah. we're doing the Unless feature, you're in here talking. <laughs> yeah, I Because you
0: have such a deep voice.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's what, I need. That's what the uh, sure SM7B mic's for. Yeah. Um, so at, at this point, we haven't purchased the bass traps. That may be something that comes in later. But at this point, I don't think we need it.
0: Wow. Yeah, i never really taken consideration what like, what the center point in the room or something like that is. and
3: yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you had been in these rooms before we put the traps up, that was um, it sounded like you were in a box. Right? Oh, really? Literally yeah. a box. Yeah. So, and then you know, as you mentioned, uh, the position where you set up the recording and mixing stations is affected by the dimensions of the room. So these aren't you know by any means perfect acoustic rooms. They weren't designed specifically specifically to be audio recording and, and mixing spaces. They've been adapted to it. So there are things we do differently if we had an unlimited budget. Yeah. Um, we obviously don't. So I think we've done pretty well, but. Um, one of the things that Ben worked on was trying to position the mixing station in the editing room to get rid of some audio inconsistencies that, that are based on the, the uh, size of the room and the shape of the room. mm mm-hmm. so.
0: And uh, can you walk us through, I know you and Ben are about to go off with the technical mumbo of yeah. the microphones, but walk us through the different types of microphones and uh, how they help with the different inconsistencies with audio.
3: So you pick a microphone based on what you want to do to it. So it's not necessarily any microphone is bad. It's that it's bad for certain purposes. Mm-hmm. So the mic that I'm on right now is the Shure SM7B. It's probably the most popular um, radio microphone podcasting microphone it's also used in the recording industry on just about everything because it's a good high quality microphone Um, it's used for micing percussion uh, cymbals things like that Um, one of the drawbacks it's a good microphone because you can adjust a little bit it has a nice bass presence to it um, I have a pretty weak voice, so it helps me. And I noticed that this one I was working at the radio station because they have SM7Bs, and I thought, I like that sound better than my real voice. <laughs> um, the SM7Bs are a little bit awkward to work with outside of the studio because they require typically some sort of additional gain or uh, pretty high end. Um, Uh, Mic preamps. So we've got sound uh, cloud lifter boxes that up the gain of these to make it workable with a a sort of standard recording environment. And then you um, get one of the Sennheisers. You got a seven B.
2: Yep, the uh, two Sennheiser, the E eight thirty five microphones.
0: Yeah, those are the ones that Annalise and I were using.
3: Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and those are good standard microphones. They're nice because they can be handheld. You can use them on stage for live performance. Mm -hmm. You can also walk around to do uh, interviews. What's that? Pop fox right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Or is it Vox
3: Pops? Vox Pops. Vox Pops. I, I, backwards. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> oh,
0: it's uh <laughs> we learned it from this NPR lady. <laughs> okay.
3: Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. So for the podcasting yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, NPR the knows their stuff. Oh yeah, podcasting. definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So th- it's good for uh walking around because you can hold it by hand and you can also reposition it as necessary either for the interviewer or the interviewee. So you just have one microphone. Um, but they're not wicked expensive. I think they're about $80 a piece yeah the s m seven b s are about three hundred dollars plus the cloud lifter box so we only have a few of those mm-hmm. um misa we also had a couple additional microphones
2: yeah, so we do have some uh condenser style microphones um they're definitely on the budget side, so I try not to use them but uh <laughs> yeah um they are around uh those are the the newer Oh, that came
3: free with the, the yeah. mic stands. Yeah, um, condenser <laughs> mics are, are actually usually fairly nice mics. Condenser mics are actually faster response. You use them for instruments, but you have to put the money into them. So I have some condenser yeah. mics in my mic locker that run about what the seven B does. Um, you also have to run them with phantom power, uh, usually. So they require some additional equipment that you mm-hmm. might not have in the field. Um, and downstairs, the ignite also has two. Um, or four of the Stenheiser wireless lavalier mics Uh that students can check out from the library, I think. And those are really good for video recording. So Uh you can uh, put the receiver on top of the camera and then put the wireless lavalier mics on uh, both the interviewer and the interviewee and they're not um, tethered to anything. And we also have a couple of um, Zoom F1 lavalier mics set up, which is a really small flash memory body pack, and then a wired lavalier. So you just put the body pack on uh, somebody's belt loop, mm-hmm. and then it's good if you're going to be walking around um, to get good sound outside or in rooms.
0: So. Is that part of the new digital making suite uh, inventory?
3: It looks all right.
2: So those uh, Zoom microphones are actually available for students to check out from the library. Okay. Um, so just from the circulation desk mm-hmm. right across from the uh, new Starbucks. Yeah. Um, you can just go ask for those, check them out. You don't need any sort of special training. Uh, But those wireless, um, the completely wireless Sennheiser. The G4s. uh, The G4s. Those are are part of the uh, digital making suite inventory. Uh So uh, you can stop in, get training, or uh, during open hours, Mm -hmm. stop in and use those mics.
3: Yeah, and those mics were uh, purchased partially to support the video equipment that you guys purchased, a couple of um, Lumix, uh, Panasonic, Uh um, I think Micro Four Thirds video cameras. Yep. Um, that work really well with They're, they're probably the best consumer grade uh, video camera on the market right now. so
1: This might be a dumb question, but what does is, is the training that you're talking about like consist of?
3: So
2: it's just a very base level training. Um, just making sure that everyone knows how to use the space um, efficiently and safely, um, not only for their safety but also for the equipment safety. Um, and just making sure that you really know what you're doing while you're mm-hmm. using these spaces. Um, so we are working on that training, and we will have that ready to go within the next week or two. Sweet. Um, so that way you can use that. And then once you've used, uh, gone through that training, um, then you'll be able to use the digital making suite anytime you like. Mm-hmm.
1: That's
3: awesome. And you can uh, sign up by, with, with the iPads outside the rooms, right? Uh do um, you have to go through you?
2: Right now we do have to go through us. Okay. Um, go but that will band. be <laughs> – Get, yeah, that, that will be uh, something that we'll be able to do in the future, hopefully.
3: Okay. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, the training is not safety training like it is for the physical making space in the basement. Mm-hmm. This is just to prevent people from being really frustrated with trying to get the equipment to work correctly because I, I do interviews as part of my research, and it's, I'm constantly forgetting to set one thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, at this point, I just have a lot of backup systems running. Um, but it's really easy to spend an hour interviewing somebody and then realize none of your footage, none of your audio is useful. Yeah.
0: So, Last year I did that. <laughs> everybody, everybody's done
3: it. Yeah.
0: yeah, even though I'd use the uh, the WTSC radio material stuff uh, for like a full year, yeah, I'd mess it up probably once every time I went in there.
2: Yeah, press one of the buttons wrong.
3: Yeah,
2: yeah and even uh, even if someone has been doing this sort of thing for a while, um, it's still easy to just forget one little thing. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. Not and backups are always important. Yeah.
0: Not super to producer Ben. Uh so then how do you determine what uh mic is good for what situation?
3: Well, you know I mentioned the the uh the set 7B if you're yeah. going to be in a fixed location, you have access to the gain um equipment we need um, is good for vocals mm-hmm. uh, a lot of times it's going to be budget but what most uh, professional producers do is they have a handful of mics that they know work for a certain thing like vocal or like mm-hmm. miking an amp and they will listen to them each of them through you know in turn and figure out which one picks up because every you know I mentioned before that every mic has a purpose so um, figuring out how to match that is trial and error to some yeah. extent you know so I've got some contact mics which are just really cheap low fidelity mics but they're good for picking up Grungy sounds for sound effects, doing things like Foley mm-hmm. sound, um, so you almost have to experiment. But you know, if you know, for example, I said condenser mics. Um, a decent condenser mic is going to have a faster response time. So if you have an instrument where you want a lot of clarity, like like fingerpicked guitar, you're probably going to want a condenser mic. Um, a dynamic mic is cheaper and it's more durable. Those uh, Shure some, or the Shure fifty seven and fifty eight that you see on stages everywhere, they're there because you can use them to hammer nails with, and they mm-hmm. still work. And they have decent audio, so those are always almost always a safe bet. As probably are the um, the Sennheisers that you guys are using. It's a safe standard bet.
0: Oh, mm-hmm. do you test any of your students with uh, seeing if they know which ones the right ones with uh, in your classes? Sometimes, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's kind of a cruel <laughs> thing. Um, you ever get some really cruel audio?
3: I get some really yeah. cool audio a lot, yeah, including from me. So. Huh. um And microphones, are, there's a, such a wide range. So these mics that we're looking at, even up to $300, that's not at all an expensive mic. I mean professional recording studios will have mic, a mic locker with 40000 or fifty or $100,000 with the mics in it um, just to cover the span. But then also some of the vintage mics will run $20,000 apiece. piece. You know, so that's um, we're not getting into that territory because there's uh, diminishing returns after you get to about four or five hundred dollars mm-hmm. for specific things.
0: Well. And uh, I know I don't know anything about super, uh, soundboards, but uh, I know we got a bunch of different ones in um, in the new digital making suite. And uh, maybe you guys, you and Ben can elaborate about that.
2: Um so as far as like the um acoustic paneling and yeah. just
0: all the uh oh those are the soundboards. I thought you meant the, the soundboards is in the uh the new um
2: Well there's the interfaces that we have here. Yeah that's what I meant the interface. <laughs> yeah. Um Nick and I don't know what we're yeah, talking, about. Yeah, talking about. Yeah I don't know. You good audience. Yep so we uh so we have the um the interfaces that go between the microphones and the computers, the Presonus. Yep. So yeah. we have two of the Presonus Studio 6.8 USBs, and then two of the Audio Box Ninety Twos, mm-hmm. I believe. Ninety Six. Yeah. Um, so these are they're just uh, boxes that we use. Um, so the microphones plug directly into that box. Um, I know uh, John Dine was talking earlier about phantom power. Um, mm-hmm. So this, uh, those interfaces will supply that power to the microphones if they need it. Um, And then it converts the signal down into something that the computers can understand. So it's just through a regular USB connection. Mm -hmm. And then um, it just goes into our recording software. Um, We're using PreSonus Studio One uh, to record and edit these podcasts.
3: Yeah, Yeah, and the the PreSonus boxes are nice. It's one of the advances in recording technology has been the cost of – uh, equipment to convert from analog to digital and then from digital back to analog so you can listen to it, it has gotten a lot cheaper and the quality is much better than it was even say five years ago. So See, the PreSonus um, audio boxes that Nick talked about, they in the mixing. We only need a couple ins and outs on those and so they're fairly limited, but um, I think they cost $100 a piece and they're decent to do scratch recording, demo things, uh, podcast stuff like that. The ones in these rooms are a little bit more expensive because they have more inputs for something like a podcast mm-hmm. because you have more, you need more than two mics running at a time. Yeah,
0: it really blows my mind because now we can create literally anything, I and mean, we have a green screen in the room right next to us. Yeah, and you it. get a video camera and you get all these different microphones. Makes me want to make a movie, maybe. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah, it's and it, the um, the way this is set up, so you guys have the two um, sort of production spaces. Yeah. One, uh, the other room is primarily for video. <laughs> yeah. Um, this one's primarily for audio, but they're sort of you can retrofit them. This one has the lights in it and everything as part of the maker space, digital making space. And then across the hallway is optimized for mixing. There's one workstation that um, we do have external monitors or speakers that can be used. Uh, The the other workstation has to use headphones. So in in theory, two people could work in there at a time. You would hope the person with uh, the external speakers isn't... um, Jacking it up too loud. <laughs> yeah. um, but that's you're, you can mix just with headphones, but you almost always want to, if you're doing a, a detailed mix, want to be able to listen through regular speakers. Um, partly because there's a lot of fatigue and, um, that you get just from wearing headphones for long periods. Um, so you want to be able to go back and forth. So the we got actually pretty decent uh, sound monitors in there. What so. do you mean by fatigue? Um the both the um, feeling of having headphones on your head for oh. three or four hours mm-hmm. and just the noise source so close to you. And it's also not natural. I mean, you're, you're sort of simulating a 3D space mm-hmm. using two speakers right up against your head. You're better off trying to listen to that with um, the actual speakers out in front of you and mm-hmm. with the air, the air being moved by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And that's why it's so important to have uh, – I don't know, Ben was talking to me the other day about how they – the digital, the, I don't know what the mixing room you call it, has mm-hmm. a specific uh, center balance for audio in it.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, and
0: that's why it's important because the speakers, I never even knew that they use the speakers for when you're editing. I always thought the headphones was the
2: best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, the way that we have that room set up, um, when I first set everything up, I had it, so when you're sitting at the desk uh, listening to the speakers, your head is in the dead center of the room.
3: Which makes sense if you don't, yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, But the issue with that is as you um, are listening to music, so sound is a physical wave. Um, So this is sort of getting into the physics behind um, the audio of everything. Um, So sound is a wave. It's uh, differences in pressure of air moving through the air. And um, so the issue with that is that um, when you create waves – there's constructive and destructive interference with those waves. Mm -hmm. So, for example, this room is a 12-foot by 10-foot room. Um, If you have a 12-foot long wave, that's approximately 47 hertz, which is in the sub-range of frequencies. So like a kick drum and a a really low um, synthesizer would be in that range. And when I was first listening to music on that, Uh, on those speakers in that position, I wasn't hearing anything in that range because since it was exactly the right spacing and wavelength and all that, um, all the sound at that frequency just canceled itself
3: out. Yeah. That's crazy. Oh, that's wild. Yeah, so it's almost, if you visualize it like uh, throwing a rock into a pond, it's going to cause waves. And if two waves meet um, at the the subsiding portion, they're going to sort of get even lower than they would. I just ran my mic there. Um, And if two waves hit, off they'll cause differences so the center of the room is actually one of the worst places to put it, even though it seems like the obvious place so and this is where that 38 percent rule we talked about before um ends up being pretty good in terms of just a, a, as a um, rule of thumb but then Bennett also checked it using recording uh, audio testing equipment which is what you generally want to do both both mm-hmm. est- estimate it and then test it because um these spaces aren't Perfect reflecting. There's desks in them, there's people sitting on them, there's speakers. So it might be off a little bit. But the um the roll of thumb is a good starting point. Mm-hmm. So. Wow. So
1: did you just do a bunch of like moving things around for a few days?
3: Yeah. So especially <laughs> if you're
1: <laughs> setting up
2: a like a professional grade recording studio, you even millimeters count. Wow. Yeah. Um, That's crazy. You would just set up um they have very specific reference mics, the really high quality ones, they actually come with uh like a USB stick that has the frequency response of that specific microphone. Not even that model, they just test it in-house before it ships out and they say, this is this serial number microphone's response curve. Um, And then you plug that into your software and just generate a frequency sweep. So um, just playing a noise at every single frequency in the spectrum. Um, And then seeing how the room responds to uh, to those tones. And you can say, okay, this one's a little bit low. This one's a little high move stuff around and maybe do some equalization on your speakers to make it all sound as flat as possible.
3: Yeah, so the the equipment that we have over in the CEC, we have one of those reference microphones that's been calibrated. Um, we actually found a, a good supplier. It's under $100, under $100 which, um, as you said, you plug that into your software, and it takes into account the fact that this microphone is a little bit less sensitive in this frequency. And when it generates that sine wave sweep, um, it can tell where things are off. You can keep testing it, but it's also useful. We know that our room, for example, is not good at below about 40 hertz. We don't do a lot of recording in there, but if we did, we would know that that would be something that wouldn't get picked up well. If you mix in a room that hasn't – and you're not aware of the inconsistencies, um, you're going to mix poorly. So when you go to another room to play whatever you've mixed, it doesn't travel well. Um, things are going to sound off. And this is a really a, a common problem for people when they first start recording is to mix something and think this sounds awesome and then take it and give it to somebody else and the person's like, this sounds really muddy. This sounds like you're in a tin can. Um, so all these measurements and testing, um, they take a while initially, but once you know the room well, then you take them into account. So professional recording engineers, know, for example, how their speakers respond. And they'll frequently will take their actual speakers with them when they go to another studio oh, wow. because they know those how those speakers perform and they don't want to have to worry about the complexity of, of somebody else's speakers. So I'm not at that level. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and sort of on that topic of making sure it travels well, Um one of the things that a lot of producers do is um, they've got the song finished, they've got it how they like it, Um, so the first thing they do is they export it from their software and throw it on their phone and then go play it in their car because you want to make sure, yeah, it's going to sound good on $300 speakers. But how is it going to sound to most of your listening audience yeah. through, like, Bluetooth headphones yeah. or in your car? How is it going to sound to my 2004 Ford Explorer? Yeah. yeah. Probably terrible. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and some people ask why you do you need expensive um, uh, sound monitors if you're just going to test it in a car. You're better off it, – it's like with a digital photographer or digital video, getting the highest resolution, the best equipment you can at the start, and then checking how it how it performs when you downgrade it. But if you, if you just mix to ear, earbuds, for example – um, anybody playing on regular speakers isn't going to like what they hear. So you're better off starting with the higher-end stuff and then um, testing it later. And that's, I mean, that's something that professional engineers now worry about, about a lot is um, everything going through iTunes, for example. Um, everything going through uh, earbuds or earbuds affects what people are hearing, and they're trying to figure out how to handle somebody who's using a pair of $400 Beats headphones that are really bass-heavy versus somebody using a pair of $99 um, wired uh, earbuds or somebody with a pair of thousand dollar cans, um, they're trying to figure out where their audience is and then play to that. So it sounds good for their, as many people as they can. So it's difficult. Well,
1: it's a lot more work than I expected. Yeah, it's a lot more science
3: <laughs> than I expected. That's my students say too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the sound design course actually carries technology credit uh, because we look at things like decibels, which are. A whole can of worms. I don't know if you've looked at them at all. Yeah, a little know. bit. But um, it, it seems like it's pretty obvious. But um, you know, even like when you say something 60 decibels, um, if something something goes from 60 decibels to 70 decibels, that's not 10 more loudness. It's 10 times more loudness. Oh, wow. wow. Um, so because it's a logarith- logarithmic scale. And a lot of the students in sound design – didn't realize we were going to get into, into looking at that or measuring frequencies or room modes or things like that. So They didn't realize there was math involved. There's math involved. And, <laughs> yeah, and they didn't like Probably that. Probably weren't happy in a and communication class with math. Some of the were, not, class of were math. not happy with that at all. They get through it. So it's not, and I know some actual rocket scientists, it's not rocket science. So we get through it.
0: <laughs> it's not rocket surgery, as
3: we say. No, it's not rocket <laughs> surgery, yeah. I have a T-shirt that says that. Oh, yeah? Yeah.
0: Yeah, the first time I recorded, I tried putting my phone on a stack of books and speaking into my phone. So,
3: <laughs> yeah, I'm amazed though. I mean, how good the microphones have gotten on things like iPhones. So even like when I use when I do uh, video recorded interviews, I'll set up my iPhone as a backup mm-hmm. um, in case something goes wrong with the main camera. And when I've had to use the iPhone video, or just when I look at it when I'm done. It's surprisingly good. Even just sitting on a tripod, just not any special sound equipment. You know, microphones aren't just a standard microphone. Um, I wouldn't use it for anything I felt strongly about, but as just sort of a backup plan or just to shoot a quick video, it's fine. Mm -hmm. They do
0: have the kind of the mics that fit onto your iPhone, though.
3: Yeah, we've looked at those trying to decide if we're going to buy some for the department to use. Oh, really? Um, They get decent reviews. You know, if you if you spend a couple hundred dollars, yeah,
0: all those Instagram people, you know, they record on that. <laughs> the, the influencers, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're leading the market, you know. <laughs> they, they are. Uh, that was all the questions I had. Do you guys have anything else to talk about, Ben?
3: No, not really. No more math. No, no more math. No, I think, exhausted I think we're done with math. What's the? <laughs> yeah, no, I do I know pi to a bunch of places. So.
0: Oh, okay, yeah. that's the only thing you really
3: need. I think so.
0: Yeah. Bye. 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 Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, John Dan, for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Again, I'm Nick.
1: I'm Annalise.
0: And I'm Ben. And this is the Clark Sing Night podcast. Listen to us again, maybe.